straight, straight from South Africa. South Africa. This is the strange and mysterious world with your hosts, Lee Straightman, William Collinson. Collinson. And uh, welcome to Strange and Mysterious World. This is season one, episode 15. Well, I think this is going to be a good one today. We are interviewing Professor Avi Loop, uh, yes. all the way from the US of A. <laughs> nice, man. I'm really looking forward to this, Lee. Yeah, I've heard a couple of Avi's interviews and things, and I want to change it up a little bit. Uh, well, I want to change it up because I, you know, everybody keeps asking the same questions. No, and every time you link on, it's the same stuff that they keep asking. So I want to, I want to get in a little bit deeper into other stuff, man. You know the things that we talk about, strange and mysterious. So <laughs> let's uh, let's go from there. But shalom aleichem, Avi. <laughs> Not bad. I don't know how to say it in uh, other languages, though. Where did you learn that? Well, I've got some a couple of um, Jewish friends, and I've got a lot of um, oh, okay. Muslim friends. So. The Muslim yeah. and the and the Jewish is very similar. Yeah, they are. Did you know? Well, I can, I can tell you an anecdote. I was um, in the women's um, forum, uh, international forum in uh, Las Vegas, and and one woman came to me and said that I have eight hundred scientists, women scientists, in uh, Iran, Iran. Okay. Who hmm. are following my work? And uh, just think about it. I'm originally from Israel. They are from Iran. And there are 800 women following my work um, <laughs> based on social media. So um, and what does your wife think of that? My wife? Yeah, uh, what does she, she think of she, 800 women following said, you? She said, take an extra day, enjoy it. <laughs> uh, I mean, she is not worried about, um, by now, you know, she knows me well enough. Either she's not worried or she wants me to to leave. I mean, that these are two explanations. <laughs> also, no, fantastic. Avi, thank you very much for for coming on board, man. Um, like yeah. I said previously, we you know we, we're very casual on this side. We we try and um, you know we make people feel as comfortable as possible. Um, a lot of our listeners um, actually comment on on how funny sometimes the podcasts are, which is you know mm -hmm. we we, we want to try and keep things light hearted and hearted okay. and those kind of things. So okay. just a ask quick me, one. Ask me anything. Don't um, don't hesitate. Don't hold back, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so a little bit about yourself, Avi. Um, I know you grew up on a farm. I know that. Right. Uh, yeah, so I'm a farm boy. I, I uh, used to collect eggs every afternoon uh, when I was young and um, very much connected to nature. Uh, so I used to drive a tractor to the hills of the village and read philosophy books. I was mostly interested in uh, French philosophers, existentialists like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus. Um, and um, what attracted me is the fact that they are sincere, that they do not pretend to be someone else. And, you know, what was frustrating to me as a kid was uh, going to the dinner table and asking a difficult question. And then the adults in the room would dismiss it simply because they didn't know the answer. And I felt that by becoming a scientist, I can answer the question myself. And actually, just a month ago, I was visited the elementary school where I went to as a young kid, which is very close to my home. Uh, I mean, the home where I grew up. Um, uh, so um, I told the kids, um, you know, I'm just like you. I mean, I'm curious, I'm wondering, and I, I don't pretend to know something that I uh, have no clue about. And um, and and they one of them said, 
how can you be a kid? Uh, you are 61 years old, you know? And I said, well, it's not a matter of biological age. It's just, uh, you know, it's a question of uh, maintaining a beginner's mind. So if you are curious about the world and you don't pretend to know more than you actually know, you are a kid. Yeah, well, 100%. I agree with that. You know what? It's, it's actually, I was chatting to uh, Will uh, a little bit earlier. It's nice to have someone in the scientific community that is on our side of the fence. You know, it's so hard when you, you know, when you're chatting to scientists to try and bring these topic up, topics up because it's just, you know, it's a one-way traffic. Well, they, there, they... Is, um, there are two, two reasons for that. One, many of the scientists are sort of nerds. You know, they, they are uh, highly accomplished uh, professionally and, uh, you know, uh, they are highly capable technically, you know, writing equations, solving them, using the computers. And they're not good at communicating with other human beings. You know, that's part of it. Um, and you can understand that that's true of other professions as well, where people specialize and, you know, they're not necessarily good communicators. That's one aspect. But the other aspect is that as part of, um, I mean, when people go to academia, they get attached to their ego because it's all about demonstrating that uh, you are smarter than other people. And mm. uh, then... Um, you know, in a way, it's just like athletes, you know, they run the 100 meters uh, dash uh, simply in order to demonstrate that they're doing it better than other athletes, or they can set the world record. Uh, running the 100 meter dash doesn't solve any existential problem for humanity, it doesn't help anyone. It's just <laughs> showing that you can do it better than others. And some people view academia as a tool to demonstrate that they're smarter than others. Okay, so, and, and I've seen throughout the 40 years that I practice science, a lot of people, even the most accomplished ones, they just use it as an ego boost. And they just um, get more and more attached to their self-esteem and, and the sense of accomplishment. So they do it in order to get honors, awards, recognition. And then they view the public as a you know, a community of people who are not professionals, they're not even in their league, they will never be able to understand. I don't need to impress them. I don't need to communicate with them. And I, and in fact, they feel superior relative to the general public. And that's very unfortunate. Why is it unfortunate? Because the public pays taxes to support science. The public cares about very important questions. Um, for example, are we alone in our cosmic neighborhood? Is there someone else out there? And then the scientists can say, well, that's, I don't want to deal with that. I just want to do some mathematical gymnastics that demonstrates that I'm smart. I just want to work on the multiverse, on extra dimensions in string theory. And then I will show that I'm smart. But the fact that the public doesn't care about it, or at least it doesn't affect the future of humanity, is completely irrelevant. So this sense of arrogance, I think, is completely inappropriate. And because I came from a farm, I feel that I'm not superior relative to anyone else, that uh, I feel as part of the public, and I feel curious about questions that the public feels curious about. And also, I feel it's my duty to uh, converse with the public because I don't, I'm no different. Uh, and in fact, I don't want to pretend that I know the answers to questions that the public cares about. It's not true. We don't know the answer whether we are alone, and let's find out the answer because the public cares about it. And so, you know, I'm very uh, uncomfortable with this uh, state of affairs. 
And one reason that I communicate with the public is that I have no sense of separation. Uh, and I do believe that uh, we should engage as scientists in questions that could impact the future of humanity. Okay, so now let me ask you something. Why astrophysics? Oh. I mean, you had a whole field to go in, so why astrophysics? Yeah, so for me, it was just circumstances because I grew up in Israel and, you know, serving in the military is obligatory. So I wanted to do something that is closest to philosophy, which is physics and mathematics, which I was allowed to pursue um, uh, in a special program within the, the Israeli military. And uh, as a result, I uh, finished my PhD in physics at age 24. And then I was offered a position at Princeton, the Institute for Advanced Study, where Einstein used to be faculty. But it was under a condition that I'll switch to astrophysics. And I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll do that. I know I, I didn't know how the sun shines. I didn't know anything. <laughs> so I started learning. Um, and, um, and then they offered me a position at Harvard. And I said, okay, well, I cannot refuse that as well. And uh, then I got tenured at Harvard. But at that point, I got I realized that um, I'm actually blessed because I'm married to my true love, even though it was an arranged marriage. You know, I didn't choose to become a scientist. The circumstances forced me because now I can ask big questions that are in the realm of astrophysics that used to be philosophical originally. But now we can address them scientifically, like, for example, how did the universe start? What was there at the beginning? So I started working on, you know, the first stars, the first galaxies, how the first light was produced in the universe, which is, you know, part of the story of Genesis in the Old Testament, in the Bible. And uh, now we have scientific understanding of what may have happened. And, and I worked on that before many people did. I, I was among the pioneers of this frontier. I wrote uh, two, two textbooks about it. And now the Webb telescope that was launched a couple of years ago is mm -hmm. able to see the first uh, generation of galaxies and address that. And um, now, more recently, I started working on um, the question. I, I also worked on black holes in the meantime, but now I'm uh, primarily interested in whether there is another intelligent civilization out there that we can learn from. You know, that will be an opportunity for us to learn. and. And again, it's uh, you know it's a sense of humility that uh, must come from observing the universe because we are not at the center of the universe. We just came at the end of the cosmic history, and you know if you come to a play and you are not on the center of stage, the simplest conclusion is the play is not about you. So we tend to think everything is about us, mm. but here is the breaking news: it's not about us. Even if you are visited. <laughs> by aliens you know they must have started the journey long before we came to exist as the human species so just forget about this sense of self-importance you know i started by saying that in academia many scientists have a sense of self-importance but as human as humans we also tend to think that we are very important and that we are at the center of of uh, all the attention in the universe and i say no don't <laughs> Forget about that. I mean, I can understand where it's coming from because my daughters, when they were young, they thought the world centers on, on them. And there was a reason for that because all they saw is people paying attention to what they do. So they thought they are the center. 
But of course, now by now, you know, some 20 years later, they realize that the world is much bigger than the environment. They and for us as humanity, you know, it also started that way. We only knew what is happening to us, so we thought we are at the center. But now I say, you know, we know much more about the universe. Let's forget about us. You know, it's not about us. So it's basically about people climbing out of Plato's cave. Hey, will you? <laughs> climbing out of what? Plato's cave. Oh, yeah. I mean, I use the, the uh, allegory, the cave allegory of Plato, uh, where you have prisoners in a cave looking, uh, I mean, they're chained so they can only look at the wall in front of them and they see shadows of things behind them and trying to conclude what, what these shadows mean. And so, you know, if we ever encounter gadgets uh, from other civilizations that come to Earth and visit us, um, it will be sort of the shadows. We will not necessarily see the senders of these gadgets, these spacecraft. We will just see the spacecraft and sort of like the shadows trying to infer what lies behind them. You know, like what is uh, what is the nature of those senders? Um, yeah, so I do like uh, Plato's allegory of the cave, but I apply it in the context of us encountering something from another civilization. Avi, I want to take you back, like right back to your childhood. What were your thoughts on extraterrestrial life? Did you think something was ever out there at that age, or was it only at a later stage that you thought, geez, maybe there should be something out there? Was it I did, earlier I or only later? I didn't think about that. And I should say that most of my life, I didn't like science fiction because it always bothered me as a physicist to watch these stories that violate the laws of physics because, um, you know, they go faster than light. The, uh, the storyline often talks about uh, relatively short journeys to near, near, nearby stars. And I know that it takes a huge amount of time. For example, with the current spacecraft that we are launching with rockets, uh, it would take about 50,000 years to reach the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, which is four light years away. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 50,000 years is the time that elapsed since the first humans left Africa. You know, that's a long time. Yeah. So if we, if we were to send a spacecraft back then, uh, when the first humans left Africa, it would only reach right now uh, the nearest star. So just you know that would be a very boring storyline for a science fiction story because <laughs> there will be so many generations on the ship where nothing really happens except they just travel through darkness uh and so of course any author of science fiction doesn't want that and they invent all kinds of you know uh storylines that make no sense so that's why i didn't enjoy science fiction but then you know, about uh, six years ago, there was an object discovered uh, in October 2017 by a telescope in Hawaii that came from outside the solar system. And it looked very different than the rocks that we are familiar with. And so I contemplated the possibility that that maybe it's a, a product of a technology by another civilization. And that's what brought me to the subject. It's more about, you know, the fact that we now see interstellar objects that came from outside the solar system and they look weird. There was another one that was a meteor from 2014, discovered by US government satellites and about a decade ago. And um, again, it looked very unusual. So, so for me, it's just 
you know, having this evidence about uh, the first interstellar objects that made me very curious. Maybe we are being visited. Okay, well, that's great. Now, I want to ask you something, because I'm, I'm assuming you were talking about Oumuamua, uh, the yes, object that we discovered. So there's, yeah. so there's a couple of things I want to find out. The first thing is, how on earth did we almost miss this 400-meter object <laughs> going past us? I mean, surely we've got, set, uh, we've got stations on Earth and in the sky that are able to detect certain things. How did we miss this? Well, okay, Almost so you, you need to understand the, the mindset of astronomers. Astronomers were seeing rocks from the solar system for, you know, many decades, centuries, okay? So they assumed that anything we would see would be from the solar system. And therefore, you know, we are familiar with rocks. There is nothing that makes them particularly exciting. But it, nevertheless, what, what the most important reason that the telescope was put in Hawaii, this observatory called PANSTARS, was that in 2005, the US Congress decided, uh, gave NASA a task to find 90% of all near-Earth objects. They, they are called, the, these are objects that come close enough to Earth to potentially collide with Earth and hurt us. And they asked, uh, to, uh, they asked to find all of them that are bigger than the size of a football field, about 140 meters. So that was the task given to NASA. And that's why the PANSTARS telescope was constructed in Hawaii to look for such objects, near-Earth objects. And then uh, what, you know, it was basically flagging every object that comes close enough to Earth. And this one, Oumuamua, was one of them. It wouldn't be flagged if it were to pass very far from Earth, and we would just miss it. And I'm sure we did miss some of them, but simply this one came within a sixth of the Earth-Sun separation. So the, teles the operators of the telescope realized, oh, here is a near-Earth object. They, they flagged it, and then they measured the speed of this object and said, wow, look at that. It looks like this object is moving faster than the escape speed from the solar system. So in other words, it's not bound by gravity to the sun. It's moving too fast. And so it means that it came from outside the solar system. So that was a complete co uh, coincidence. Uh, 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 just because it came close to Earth, they noticed it. And um, you would say, okay, well, after that, obviously the astronomers will go and look for all the other interstellar objects. Well, there is a new telescope uh, in Chile called the Rubin Observatory that um, is expected to start operations in a year, 2025. It cost um, about uh, $600 million to construct, to build, and uh, the data will be public. It was funded by the National Science Foundation in the US. So you would assume, okay, given that Oumuamua was discovered, of course, astronomers will define as a high priority finding other interstellar objects and if you do the calculation, you find, well, it should find, because it's much more sensitive, it will use a, a camera with 3.2 billion pixels, a thousand times more pixels than your cell phone camera. Uh, and it will survey the southern sky every four days. You would think, you know, that obviously it will be very sensitive. It could actually detect uh, a, a Nomuamua-like object every month, okay? But I... As you know, a year ago, I asked them, those involved in the project, 
the Rubin Observatory, and I realized that nobody is looking for interstellar objects. Actually, the software used by people who plan to process the data will only look for objects that are bound to the sun uh, in terms of objects passing near Earth and, and not for anything outside of the solar system. And I said, how is that possible? So then with my postdoc, we developed the software that will search for interstellar objects. And the hope is that we will find many of them, maybe a dozen a year. And that will allow us to follow up and figure out what they are. You know, even if one out of a hundred happens to be technological in origin, not a rock, that would be similar to finding a tennis ball in your backyard, you know, among all the rocks that you see. And it will inform you that there is a neighbor that threw this tennis ball. So, so that would be an amazing discovery. And we, we hope to do that. But since then, you know, we also, with my student, um, we also found um, a meteor from 2014 that I mentioned, the first interstellar meteor, an object roughly the size of a, of a watermelon that collided with Earth uh, a decade ago and, was, and created a fireball as a result of its friction in air. And the U.S. government satellite detected it and measured a very high speed that we interpreted to mean that it came from outside the solar system. And actually, half a year ago, I went in summer uh, 2023, in, uh, between June 14th to 28th, we went on an expedition to the Pacific Ocean to search for the materials of this meteor. And we are about to finish now the analysis. And it looks like we discovered some materials that have a composition of elements different from what's known about material from the solar system. Okay, that's awesome. One more question on Amoa Moa. Your data said something very different to what we've been seeing as the, as the general public. I mean, the general public, we've been shown Amoa Moa as a cigar-shaped object, but your data shows something completely different. So why are they, why have they pushed that agenda? What's, what do you think is the, the issue? No, so originally, I mean, we we don't have an image of a Muamua uh, because it was too small to resolve with even the biggest telescopes. But what we did know immediately is that as the object tumbles every eight hours, the amount of sunlight that is reflected from it changes by a factor of 10. And so that means the area of the object projected on the sky is changing by a factor of 10 as the object is spinning. And think about a piece of paper, you know, that when it um, is tumbling in the wind, you know, you see a different amount of area of the piece of paper in front of you. And change by a factor of 10 means that the object has a very extreme geometry, similar to a piece of paper. Now, when you look at a piece of paper and it's, uh, you know, sort of close to being edge on, you it looks like uh, a cigar. It looks elongated. Uh, so that's what the artist illustration was that basically tries to show a, an object that is 10 times longer than it is wide. Project. Okay, so we are seeing the Sauron project. Yeah, but in fact, uh, there was a very detailed paper um, analyzing the uh, light curve, the amount of light as a function of time reflected from the object and concluded that the 90% confidence that this object must have been flat. And the, even the original discovery paper suggested that it's most likely flat. 
And for some reason, the artist ignored it. And then everyone, you know, all the reporters were showing that artist's illustration. But the correct way to think of this is it was most likely flat, like a pancake. But when you look at it sideways, it looks like a cigar. Okay. All right. I understand that. Okay. So planet Earth, the guys, there's a lot of research going on, especially on land. Under the sea, not too much. We've got a lot of research going on in space, which is cool. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on researching extraterrestrial objects that are on Earth and can be detected on Earth? So under the water, in the mountains, you know, because we always hear that, you know, when we get these UFO reports that come from people, they're always saying things that are like, for example, the Nimitz, they were, they were saying things were coming from the water. There's, there's people that are saying things that are coming from the mountains. So what is the possibility of detecting extraterrestrial technologies that are actually here on Earth? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, from an astronomer point of view, from a, a scientist point of view, it's much cheaper to study things on Earth. I mean, just to give an example, if we want to get materials from an interstellar object like Oumuamua, that means designing a space mission that would you know, chase it, land on it, retrieve some material, and then bring it back to Earth. That will cost uh, more than a billion dollars. I mean, we've done it with OSIRIS-REx that went to the asteroid Bennu, and they brought eventually some material to Earth. But it's a very expensive mission. The expedition that we, went, uh, that we had uh, to the Pacific Ocean cost us one and a half million dollars. So that's a factor of a thousand less money. And uh, in fact, you know, it's so much easier that you can do a thousand expeditions for the price of uh, one uh, OSIRIS-REx like mission. And I should say OSIRIS-REx had, had an easy job because the uh, asteroid that it was after was moving relatively slowly compared to, to, the, uh, to the spacecraft. But if you consider interstellar objects, they move very fast and chasing them is not easy, okay, or colliding with them. So um, I think it's a much more promising path to explore um, by looking for interstellar objects that became meteors. In other words, collided with Earth, generated a fireball, you can go after them. Or, and you know that they are interstellar because you measure their speed before they collided with Earth, and you can infer that they were moving too fast to be bound to the sun. Uh, another possibility is, of course, just like the Nimitz that you mentioned, you see functional devices that humans may have not produced. And again, it's easier because it's closer to us. We just need to be at the right place at the right time. And that's why I'm leading the Galileo project that the um, is uh, now operating an observatory at Harvard University. We're monitoring the sky 24-7 in the optical, infrared, radio, and audio. And, and we hope to see some unidentified anomalous phenomena, the way the US government talks about, and intelligence agencies, military personnel. So, so we are trying to find such objects. And it would be fantastic if we were to uh, visit a, a crash site, You know, if we could find some materials. For now, the only materials that I was able to retrieve was from the crash site of the meteor, the interstellar meteor that we went after. So the answer to your question is definitely yes. Uh, I do see that as a very important uh, and, in fact, the most uh, practical way of learning about things that came from outside the solar system. Do you get government funding for that stuff, or is it still going to be privatized? 
No, it's all uh, based on donations. Um, yeah. Uh, the issue with, okay, so to, to get government funding, you often need to submit proposals to federal agencies like uh, the National Science Foundation, NASA, and the committees that evaluate uh, those funding requests are often filled with cons- people who work in the mainstream of science that are not necessarily asking those questions, and they regard those questions as risky. Of, uh, and in fact, um, it's very difficult to get funding through those channels. Uh, I did not actually engage in fundraising. People just read my book, Interstellar uh, Extraterrestrial, um, in 2021, and provided me with a few million dollars for the research uh, of the Galileo project. They just uh, contacted me. And um, uh, now I have a second book out uh, called Interstellar. And I also write uh, routinely in on medium.com. You can find my essays every day or two. Uh, these are updates about my work. You can find mm-hmm. them by searching for avilob at medium.com. Uh, subscription is at no cost whatsoever. You can get updates. So um, I have a lot of visibility and as a result, uh, wealthy individuals decide to fund the research. And of course, in the case of Galileo, the Galileo project, the more funding we get, the more observatories we can build around the world uh, that we look for anomalous phenomena. And um, we now know how to build such an uh, observatory because we have a successful one at Harvard. And so anyone interested in promoting this uh, research and even having an observatory called after them in their favorite location just need to contact me. Okay, it's awesome. I think it's actually better that the government stays out of it. Because as you said, I think yeah. they ask too many, they, they, they one trap mind. And if you do find something, they would expect you, they would expect it to be quietened down. They wouldn't yeah, want yeah. You to release it. Anyway. So, exactly. So with the, I mean, the, okay. So the interesting question is whether the government has its own data because there were some uh, people who said that, especially. Uh, David Grush, a whistleblower that gave a testimony in the House of Representatives and in the U.S. and under oath and claimed that the U.S. government has programs for retrieval and reverse engineering of uh, materials that were collected from crash sites of uh, spacecraft uh, that came from outside of this earth. And so the issue is that these are, according to him, classified programs. We can't get access to the information. Of course, from my perspective, if the government has any such data, it should reveal it, it should share it with uh, scientists. It would save me decades of my own time if they already found the materials or the evidence. And it makes no sense for them to keep it because it, it's not a matter of national security. You know, anything that came from outside the solar system should be you know, of interest to all humans and uh, nothing in particular attending to the interest of one uh, nation or one government. So my hope is that someone in government will see the light and release any such information if it exists. I don't know if it's, it exists because I've never seen it. Um, and then I know you lead the Black Hole Initiative. So yeah. how, have you guys detected any in our, in our neighborhood, Black Holes? Yeah, so in fact... Um, the Black Hole Initiative uh, that I founded, I was the founding director of, uh, started in 2016. And it was um, a center that brought together astronomers, physicists, mathematicians, and philosophers. And in 2019, three years later, 
the first image of a black hole was uh, actually derived uh, from data uh, at the conference room of the Black Hole Initiative. And uh, it got uh, to the press. It was a very famous discovery. Uh, we have a photograph of a black hole. The shadow of the black hole is seen as a dark region on the background of uh, hot gas that is uh, swirling it. And since then, there was another image uh, obtained for another black hole. So the two black holes are one in uh, a galaxy that is a very massive galaxy called M87 in a nearby cluster of galaxies called the Virgo cluster. It's about, um, and the second one is in the center of the Milky Way galaxy, our own galaxy. And the first one is 2,000 times farther, but also the black hole is 2,000 times bigger in mass, so uh, or 1,500 times bigger in mass. So then uh, the, the, uh, on the sky, the black hole size is proportional to its mass. So it's actually projected to be roughly of the same size on our sky, the two black holes. And one of them is um, about 6 billion times the mass of the sun. That's in M87. And the other one is about uh, 4 million times the mass of the sun at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And now we have these two images. So we know that black holes exist. And of course, uh, there was an important discovery in parallel to that, which is uh, the detection of gravitational waves, which are ripples in space-time from the collision of black holes at the edge of the universe by the LIGO experiment, and it won the Nobel Prize. So we now know that black holes are real, and they're really <laughs> amazing uh, objects because they are just extreme uh, distortions of space and time. And if you end up inside the event horizon of a black hole, uh, it's the ultimate prison. You can never check out. Even light cannot <laughs> escape from there. So sort of a one-way street if you end up there. Uh, a small black hole, uh, roughly the mass of the sun or a few times the mass of the sun, up to 100 times the mass of the sun. These black holes are generated by the collapse uh, of the core of a massive star. And uh, these black holes are very harmful. If you are an astronaut and you approach such a black hole, then your body would be ripped apart as you get close to the black hole, uh, even within the event horizon distance. The other type of black holes are very massive black holes that form at the centers of galaxies. And as I said, there are millions to billion times the mass of the sun. And those, if you were to enter the event horizon, you wouldn't feel it because the difference in force between the, the different acceleration on your toes versus your head will not be significant. So you will just fall as a whole, as, an, as a piece through that event horizon. Nothing bad will happen. And then it will take you uh, a few hours to a few days until you end up very close to the center of the black hole where your body would be ripped apart by the singularity there. So, oh, okay. uh, so it's not a pleasant journey at the end in both cases, but at least in the, for the most massive black holes, you can have a journey for four days falling at the, almost the speed of light towards <laughs> the center of the black hole. And you can still enjoy it for most of the time for those massive black holes. So let me ask you a question on the black hole. So everything gets sucked into the black hole, even light. Right. Where is it going? Do, do you have a theory? Because there's something, somebody has mentioned, or I can't remember there were theories that would talk about something called the white hole, where the reverse is actually happening of a black hole. Well, that's just a mathematical curiosity. That, uh, But the thing is that 
uh, Einstein's equations, which are used to describe a black hole um, based uh, on the way he um, uh, identified, he basically identified gravity with curvature of space and time and wrote the equations that describe it. Uh, and um, those equations break down when you get close to the center of a black hole because the curvature of space and time becomes infinite, it diverges, and then the equations cannot work. And you don't know what happens near the center of a black hole. So that's called the singularity. And we know why uh, there is this uh, shortcoming of Einstein's equations. It's because when you get to very high curvatures of space and time, quantum mechanics should be important. Quantum mechanics is another pillar of modern physics. Uh, however, we don't have a theory that unifies quantum mechanics with Einstein's gravity, with the general theory of relativity. So we don't know what happens in the center. I, I think my view is that all the matter that falls into a black hole ends up making an object near the center. The, okay. This is the object that is uh, that has a density that is the maximum density that, that we can imagine that matter can have. It's called the Planck density. That's where the curvature of space and time is the maximum, where gravity is as strong as all the other forces in nature. And so I imagine there being an object where the matter collects to the surface of the object as it falls in, and you keep growing that object. Um, of course, the problem of checking, the, and I gave a talk about it a month ago, and the problem of checking it is that you have to enter a black hole to see if there is an object there. <laughs> and it's a one-way trip. So someone said, well, this is not verifiable. I said, well, it's up to you. You can go into a black hole and check it. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> I mean, it's not as if it's impossible. It's, it's possible. It's just that you will never return to report back about it. And, and I thought about this idea when there was a flood at the basement of my home. And, and um, then I realized that the water that uh, I usually assumed naturally comes, you know, goes out through the sewer out of the home. I realized that the sewer must be clogged. And uh, we found with a plumber that indeed there were tree roots clogging it. And then I thought, okay, so what happens at the center of a black hole? You know, if um, it's clogged, you know, uh, then uh, the material will accumulate there. And so that's how I came across this idea by having the flood in my basement. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. so, so what are your thoughts then on wormholes? Do you think it's? Do you think they're possible to to well, to do? Um, do you think so? Once again, we get to a situation where quantum uh, effects and gravity are mixed, and we don't have a good theory of quantum gravity. So, at the moment, it's all speculations that people have. And you know, if you just use Einstein's equations without quantum mechanics, you you realize that wormholes, stable wormholes, do not exist. In other words. If you're trying to build sort of a bridge between two points in space uh, that you can traverse faster than light so that you go from one point to the other faster than the speed of light through this bridge, you find that the bridge uh, is unstable, that it uh, snaps uh, over a time scale that is shorter than your travel time through that uh, wormhole. So according to Einstein's equations, wormholes are not real. But then some people said, okay, well, if we imagine some form of quantum gravity, 
then we can, in principle, predict the wormholes that might exist made of some material that is very exotic. We don't know if this material exists. So that's the that's where we are. Yeah, people have speculations, but we have no idea if those theories of quantum gravity are correct or if these materials exist. I would say for now, we shouldn't believe these stories. Okay. And then my, my last question to you, well, before you maybe want to ask a couple of things, is what are your thoughts on time travel? Yes. Possible? So, yeah. So that's related to wormholes because the idea of wormhole is that maybe you can travel faster than light and by that visit your past and do all kinds of... And, um, you know, some physicists, a very distinguished physicist like uh, Kip Thorne and Stephen Hawking, they argue that most likely there is a ban on time travel because otherwise you get into some logical inconsistencies for example you can take you can take a gun and kill your grandparents and then how would you exist in that <laughs> case it, it's a logical inconsistency yeah. so um uh, well so other people said well maybe if you take a gun and you go back and then you want to kill your grandparents somehow the trigger you can't pull the trigger uh but so the simplest um, idea was that, in fact, such tri trips are banned by physics, that you can't do it. Uh, but according to classical physics, the, without quantum mechanics, it's definitely not allowed. Okay, we All the experiments as of now uh, indicate that the speed of light is, is an absolute upper limit. We can't travel faster than light. We can't go back in time. Uh, there is no, no evidence for... Uh, something like that being possible but in principle you know you might say okay well maybe if we have a quantum theory of gravity and we can build a wormhole or we can build some other time machine we will be able to do that in principle it's obviously possible but we have to first develop the theory of quantum gravity and then see what it says uh, i wouldn't be surprised since we haven't well we haven't seen people from the future do things to us <laughs> as of yet. <laughs> some people think, oh, well, maybe these anomalous phenomena that some people report are visits from our future. Yeah. But um, at the moment, obviously, the data does not necessarily say that. I mean, the data is not good enough. Yeah, uh, so I, I, the bottom line is most physicists would argue that, well, there is no evidence for that. And also, it's probably banned uh, by the laws of physics. But we don't have a quantum theory of gravity to show that. Okay. And my sorry, my, my last, last, last question. Sorry, Will. Mm -hmm. If you've got an alien technology that are a couple of thousand years ahead of us, do you think we'll be able to detect from in, in our current technology, do you think we'll be able to detect their technologies? I mean, they may have moved so far over to something else that we would never be able to find. Yeah, that's true. Although if you think about a cave dweller from our past, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, someone from a cave touching the technological gadgets that we have, that person should be able to see a cell phone lying on the floor, okay? That would not be impossible. But then that cave dweller might say, oh, it's a, it's a rock of a type that I've never seen before, okay? Of course, if the cave dweller has a kid, the kid might press some buttons and realize it's not a rock. And so that's why I keep maintaining this kid-like uh, curiosity. The other thing is, you know, when I went to the Pacific Ocean, I asked my students uh, in the class, 
uh, whether, you know, if we find a gadget at the location of the first interstellar meteor and it has buttons on it, should I press a button? And uh, half of the class said, please don't do that. It will affect all of us. <laughs> and another half said, please do. We want, we would like to see what, what it yeah. does. Uh, you know, maybe it's a, <laughs> a, a bit iPhone 100, whatever. And um, then a student said, uh, what will you actually do, Professor Love? Uh, because the vote, vote appears to be split. And I said, uh, I would take it to a laboratory and examine it before engaging with it. So the answer to your question is, yes, in principle, we could see things even if we don't understand them. For example, you know, you meet people that you don't fully understand. You can still recognize that there are people, you know, they're in front of you. So even though you can't understand some things, you still can identify them as existing. You know, that definitely is the case. However, if they have technologies that are so sophisticated, such that they develop some stealth uh, qualities for, that do not allow you to notice them. Like, for example, we know that 83% of the matter in the universe is dark matter. It's not visible mm -hmm. to us. We know that because we see that this matter gravitates, it creates gravity, but we can't observe it. We can't see it. It doesn't scatter light. It doesn't produce light. So we call it invisible matter or dark matter. That's 83% of the matter in the universe. So imagine those aliens knowing what dark matter is and building a spacecraft out of dark matter. We wouldn't see it in that case. So okay. in that case, the answer to your question is no, we wouldn't notice it. <laughs> Just a question that's popped into our mind now, dark matter. I, I know it's still theory because we, we don't really know what, uh, what dark matter is all about, if I'm, if I'm correct. Would dark matter be a fit? Because now you're saying, just you've brought something up here. You're saying that it creates gravity, right? Doesn't is that not what black holes do? Yes. Is it not, is it not related? Or are, are dark? Oh matter yeah, that's a, an excellent um, an excellent question. Some people think maybe the dark matter is made of black holes that were formed in the early universe. These are called primordial black holes. Yes. So some people suggested maybe the dark matter is made of black holes, small black holes. You know the they could have the mass of an asteroid up to the mass of the moon, you know, and still be around and we wouldn't notice them. Uh, that's a possibility. Okay, because uh, they suck in light as it goes, doesn't it? The, the dark matter. Uh, yeah, comes. So, in pre but mm -hmm. if they have the size of an asteroid, like uh, um, the mass of an asteroid, it would be really difficult to detect them because even if they pass through Earth, mm -hmm. they don't produce any detectable signal that we can notice you know it's really difficult uh because they're tiny they, they they have the size of a proton and they have the mass of an asteroid roughly a kilometer in size so if they pass through your body they will kill you but the chance of them passing through your body or through earth is really extremely small even over the age of the universe and even if they were to pass through earth you will notice them so um so it's really it's really difficult to detect them, and some people suggested that maybe the dark matter is made of black holes. But we there are all kinds of ideas of how to look for them if they pass through stars, if they deflect light, like you were saying, or if they do something else. It's not easy for black holes between the mass of a kilometer-sized asteroid and the mass of the moon 
it's still completely a completely open question. We were able to rule out the possibility that they are uh, the mass of, of the sun, for example, because then they would deflect light from stars and we would notice them. The, the gravitational lensing is the effect of uh, where gravity uh, focuses light. Uh, and, and so if there were uh, black holes of the mass of the sun making the dark matter, we would by now notice them and, and that was ruled out. But between the mass of an asteroid and the mass of the moon, they're still allowed. Okay, cool. Yeah, yes, sir. Well, I just sorry, just to go back to the Dave Grush thing you said earlier. Like, what do you think of that whole story and Dave Grush? And have you had any contact with him? Yeah, so a month ago, uh, I had a Zoom conversation with him for more than an hour, and um, he seemed to be very convinced. And uh, he said that he cannot reveal the details because it would put him in jail. If uh, based on all kinds of agreements that he signed with the U.S. government, and so for me as a scientist, you know, it's a confusing situation because I can only respond to evidence. You see, I people can tell me things and they might believe them very strongly, but that's not convincing because you know it's just like storytelling you know when there is a car accident you have many people involved and each of them tells you a different story and even though it's the same event and when you think about it fifa the world soccer organization you know they decided yeah. in the women's world cup in summer 2023 that they make a decision about whether there was a goal or not not by asking eyewitnesses the the soccer players or or the audience <laughs> instead they are using cameras you know video from cameras and uh, that's the way science is done so you know as much as he sounds uh, authentic and very convinced the fact that he doesn't give me any specific clues uh, gives me a pause and um, i told him uh, also that um, you know it's important for him not to speculate about the relevant physics because he was uh, mentioning at, at Congress and in other interviews the, the possibility of extra dimensions explaining it or the holographic principle, things that come from string theory. And I told him, you know, these are speculative ideas about quantum gravity. He should not really go in that direction. So he should stick to whatever he knows about the facts. And unfortunately, he could not reveal those details to me. So... All I can say is that he's convinced, but I'm not convinced. <laughs> but nice. I would very much like to see the evidence. You see, I'm not saying it's not there. I believe him, but um, I think in, in this context, the government is, if indeed it has this information, uh, it's their duty, their responsibility to share it with scientists that would help them figure it out. Yeah, 100%. Well, what else? Yeah, and just one last other thing is that I remember growing up, just after the last few years, like with the whole pandemic and everything, like science, like it's become like a religion. Like everybody's like, just trust the science and science is like, it's a process. Science is a process. And it's also like, as I said, with science is a, uh, people becoming science is a religion, but it's actually just a process. And it's like, even though we think that exactly. sometimes we've come to a conclusion about this is how something really works, it can be proven wrong. Like exactly, Galilea and, I should, and, and whatever, and, and so and so forth. And with yeah. respect to religion, I wanted to emphasize one thing that 
you know, uh, there is this biblical story about Moses in the Old Testament that saw a burning bush that was never consumed. And that convinced Moses that God exists. And what is God? It's a superhuman entity. But today you could buy off the shelf an object that will not burn like a bush and put it in front of Moses and he he would be amazed and filled with awe. So if I was next to Moses, I would use (laughs) an infrared camera, measure how much energy is coming out per time out of this bush, measuring the temperature and telling Moses whether it was constructed by a superhuman entity. But this superhuman entity, instead of calling it God, it could have been just a more advanced scientific civilization. So my point is that, you know, if we meet someone that is far more advanced than we are, you know, we might be filled with religious awe. And it's a way of unifying religion with science because there will be something real you are encountering. You look you look at something and it looks like a miracle, but it's actually a much more advanced technology. That's all. Yeah, we've got the same thoughts. I mean, not that we have it yet, but the Anunnaki, you know, all those kind of things, the discussions in Sumeria about the the so-called gods, we've all kind of figured out that uh, they've actually been advanced civilizations. <laughs> that have been there before us. Yeah, and that's that's why I think it's advantageous for us to meet with them because it's like meeting a smarter kid in your class. You know, you 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 can learn from them, uh, and uh, and that will give us a, a, a glimpse at our own technological future and, and maybe maybe encourage us to do better and to to change our priorities because right now we are you know look at the the world news uh, much of it is about hostilities that you know some people want to kill other people mm. you know it's such a narrow minded and and stupid thing to do when you think about the universe at large you know we are all sharing this uh, rock that we were born on the earth and we keep fighting with each other about territories where there is so much real estate in space and the universe is so big and it, it's completely ridiculous that we are doing what we're doing, but maybe the work, the wake up call will come from us noticing that there is a neighbor out there. Yeah, that would be fantastic. And, you know, I, I wish you the best of luck in your project. Uh, seriously, I hope you find technology out there that would be awesome for us uh, lay human beings. <laughs> To, to yeah. hear those things coming through. Thank you. Be awesome. That's my hope. My hope is during my lifetime, within the coming years, to, to find it. And then I would say that my life was worth living. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Well, yeah, well anything on your side, Ben? Uh, we just want to say I really appreciate the work you're doing in the Galileo project. It's, it's very exciting to see, you know, someone in a in a, a proper scientist, you know, t- taking this kind of stuff seriously. So it's, it's a breath, breath of fresh air. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. And uh, you know, there is a, a, a filming crew um, that is uh, following me, uh, producing a documentary for Netflix. So hopefully it will come out in a year or so. Oh, so wow. That's that's fantastic. That, Jeez, I can't wait and, to see uh, that. And there is also a playwright that wrote a play. He wants me to perform it off-Broadway uh, about oh, wow. my research. And uh, <laughs> there is also a sculpture that makes a, a sculpture that I, just two days ago I got... Um, a phone call from Germany. Someone made a, an art based on what I'm doing. So uh, people are inspired, but it's not easy. I mean, to do all this work, and mm-hmm. I'm doing my best. But I think what's important is that people are taking notice, and when more people take notice, the more interest you have in the subject that you are trying to trying to do, and hopefully more 
finance comes your way so that you can do more with what you need to do. Yeah, I really hope that more people will behave like kids, uh, just being curious, wondering, uh, not so much attached to their ego, and there will be world peace at that point, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Like the, hermetic, the hermetic saying, uh, assume nothing so you can know everything. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, awesome. I mean, um, I don't know if there's anything from your side, but yeah, thank you very much for coming on and uh, for spending your time with us. Uh, I know you did you do your five-mile run this morning. Yeah, I uh, I did. Uh, I do it every morning at sunrise. I did it also on the ship uh, in the Pacific Ocean. And yeah. except that the, the documentary producer said to me, we want to film you one uh, morning. And then they asked me to run uh, 10 miles that morning instead of 15 miles. <laughs> but I, I survived that uh, nevertheless. Yeah, because it it brings me closer to nature. I'm jogging on my own and without any people around, everyone is asleep at that time. And also every sunrise is different in terms of the colors and being surrounded by animals. And it's just, uh, you know, cannot be better than that. Much better than the rest of the day for me. Mm. But I think it's also the time that you're in your own mind. So how, how yes. long does it take you? How long does it take you to about, run your uh, ha, About half an hour. And then uh, as you are exactly correct because think about them. Um, everything that happened the day before and what I would like to do in the next day. And it's a, it's a, an opportunity for processing uh, that when you are um, engaged in answering emails or answering phone calls and speaking with people, you just don't have that luxury of processing yeah. what happened to you. And so it's good to have time for yourself, yeah. at least half an hour. I highly it's, recommend. And especially for That's your work, because you probably get all your great breakthroughs then as well. Well, it's your meditation time, isn't it? Yeah, it is meditation. <laughs> exactly. It is. But a different, a different type uh, while, while exercising. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Uh, Abhi, thank you again so much. Yes, thank, thank you. you for having thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. My Abhi. pleasure. My thanks, pleasure. thanks. Cheers. Bye. Awesome, bud. Oh, jeez, man. That was really cool. So I'll never think of um, athletics uh, the same again. I mean, I really thought <laughs> athletics was pointless. <laughs> But like when he said it, it just sounded even so much more pointless. I was like, Jesus. Yeah, it's like, why are you doing it? You know, it's always good to have um, you know, people like that, especially like I was saying, on our side of the fence. I mean, we always the one that believe in extraterrestrial life, we believe in something else that's there. And it's lucky to have scientists that really um are kind of on our side of the fence now. Yeah. You know, not on the other side, which I, I think is absolutely so necessary but because we'll never move forward we got to keep having this division and until such time as you've got people like uh, abi that can actually start researching uh, certain things and then coming back to the public and saying yes actually this is what we found we found yeah. some sort of technology and that, that'll blow the lid off everything yeah no, i know mean, you know i mean as you, as you said like yeah because you can't think outside of the box anymore because then the the main the mainstream narrative just shuts it down so we never can actually progress because we just trapped in this like one way of thinking and this and yeah you know. and it's a constant battle between the two you know what i mean it's, it's like ridiculous man yeah. when you've got guys like ivy and, and i'm assuming there's a lot more you know trying to figure out and do what 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 they can to find out what's really actually happening and what's really there it's it's, it's just yeah i think it's awesome i think no, it's, it's really something we need and it's and it's a good it's a good way forward uh, especially for for our time, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> well, guys, uh, thank you for listening again today and thank you for your time. Hope you support and follow us. Thanks for Abby for coming on. 
Will, thanks again for your time. Yeah, and um, yeah, we'll we'll speak to you guys next week. Cheers, guys. Oh man, cheers, man.